you're listening to the CC Solicitors Podcast with Colleen Cleary, Claire Dawson and Regan O'Driscoll. Welcome to CC Solicitors Podcast. CC Solicitors is a specialist employment and partnership law firm. And I'm here today with my fellow partners, Claire Dawson and Regan O'Driscoll. And we're going to talk about some top tips for remote workplace investigations. And certainly what we've noticed in the last number of weeks is that we have been involved in advising clients in relation to progressing some more kind of imminent issues around disciplinary issues. But there certainly seems to be a little bit of a reluctance to progress some of the more complex workplace investigations, such as bullying and harassment or sexual harassment. And it's interesting to note that the court service is trialling running remote hearings, which is quite a complex feat and really quite impressive. And I think from what we've learned in the last number of weeks is that investigations can be progressed remotely. And we're going to have to enter into a new normal phase of dealing with these investigations. And it really is best just to move forward and progress those investigations, because it could be at some point people might be reluctant to face into a face-to-face investigation again. Also, there's some legal risks if you don't address some of those investigations. And if in the event that you don't progress an investigation, there is always a risk that you might not be able to avail of some of the defences that are available for bullying, harassment or discrimination cases. Defences such as that you took steps to prevent or reverse the effects of the discrimination. And also, per se, a lengthy delay in progressing investigation could in itself result in an act for an employee to complain that they'd been penalised under the Health and Safety and Welfare Work Act. And also any delay might also exasperate any sort of personal injury or any kind of stress or work stress that an employee might be experiencing in the context of these types of situations. And some people may be surprised to know that we do get involved quite heavily in internal investigations. They can be quite complex and we're either running those investigations ourselves or we're kind of shattering what those investigations and assisting how they might progress. And it might be a bit of a surprise to some people, but I think in the last number of years, and, and Regan, you'll have some thoughts around this, is that people and the courts themselves have kind of stepped into processes where the processes have got quite complex and you know have resulted in legal action being taken. Generally happens where the investigation itself has kind of unraveled or certain processes or procedures haven't been complied with. Would you agree with that, Regan, like from your perspective, you know, where things that seem quite simple can actually get quite complex quite quickly? Yeah, there's there's actually been, and this happens in employment law a lot, in fact, there'll be a, a fashion or a wave of a type of legal proceeding. And recently, in the last few years, there's been a, a fashion of bringing challenges to disciplinary investigation processes or disciplinary processes with people seeking an equitable remedy in the high court. And so something as simple as, I mean, I suppose the most high profile case recently, McKelvey versus Irm Rodairn, something as simple as somebody being accused of misusing a company fuel card and that being investigated in 2016 turns into a Supreme Court hearing uh, late in 2019. I mean, that's astonishing, something that small and minor could go to the Supreme Court of the whole country. And, and, you know, I mean, thankfully, what's happened as a result of that is that we have some guidance in relation to uh, one of the questions that comes up quite regularly, which is whether you can have legal representation at a hearing. And in that particular case, the Supreme Court quite sensibly said, well, it's going to depend on a number of factors, including the capacity of the particular person to present their own case. So what kind of person are we talking about here? Are they able to argue in their own defence? And secondly, maybe most importantly, how serious is the charge? What is the potential penalty here? Are they at risk of dismissal or even, you know, a very, very serious sanction? 
And thirdly, whether any points of law are going to arise. Because obviously, maybe this is somebody who could argue their own case in the ordinary course of events, but something particularly complex comes up here that they're going to need a lawyer representing them. And, and what also came out of that case is, albeit in a sort of an arbiter perspective, i.e. It's, it's off the cuff, it's not necessarily a key part of the case, is that cross-examination is not necessarily going to be something that employees are going to be allowed to do. Now, a lot of employers would be astonished at even that coming up for question. How can you have a cross-examination in an investigation hearing or disciplinary hearing, particularly where it's an allegation of, say, sexual harassment? Uh, is the person who says they've been sexually harassed going to be subjected to that in an internal hearing in the workplace? Potentially by the, the other employees, senior counsel, it, it seems really it, it would just have an extraordinary dampening effect. But this is this is something that comes up for question. Uh, and the Supreme Court said, no, it doesn't help anyone. Uh, really, what we should be trying to do with any investigation is get to the truth of the matter. And how do we do that? Obviously, we test evidence, but cross-examination doesn't seem like it would be uh, appropriate. Now, it may come up in another case again, but uh, that's certainly where the Supreme Court seems to be at the moment. Yeah, so some welcome clarification from the, the Supreme Court on that, setting the bar quite high, I think, in relation to uh, legal representation. And like, like you said, rightly so. And then just turning then to the actual practicalities of running a remote hearing, as I've said, the courts are trialing this at the moment. Um, there are some sort of key preparations in relation to setting up a remote investigation. And we just wanted to reflect it on some of the things that we've been seeing the last number of weeks that might assist you in processing a remote investigation. There's a bit of stop start. And, you know, and I think after two or three it goes, people will get a bit smoother uh, into running these investigations. And it might form part of the whole kind of return to work COVID policy that you might be kind of putting together. And this could be part of that policy, which we're helping a lot of clients put together at the moment as to how these investigations will be run going forward. It'd be worth having a process worth having kind of stock questions, stock processes as to how you would deal with this. And Claire, I think you've got some reflections about the, the, the pre-investigation phase. I suppose we always look at from pre-investigation, investigation, the report, and, and what kind of, you know, as with everything, preparation is key, isn't it, Claire? I, I think that's right, Colleen. Preparation is key. And frankly, in relation to investigations that are carried out remotely, but also an investigation that you're doing in the normal way, so as and when we get back to normal and we're doing these face to face, it's really important at the outset to be clear about what is the issue or what is the complaint that is to be investigated. Sometimes a person will make a complaint at a meeting. They'll have a discussion about it with a manager or a colleague, but they haven't actually committed it to writing. And it's really important to be clear about what the complaint that you're investigating is there might also be a very long grievance or document that's been submitted, which covers a wide period. And as a result of that, again, it's going to be important to distill down what is the complaint that's actually being investigated. I also think it's really important at the start for the employer and their advisors to do a kind of a roadmap at the outset of where this process is likely to go. So at the investigation stage, what are the next steps that need to be taken in accordance with the policy? What happens when you get an outcome? Is it going to be an outcome findings of which mean that you need to go on and carry out a disciplinary procedure? If so, who's going to carry out that procedure? Is there an appeal? Sometimes there's an appeal at the investigation stage. Who's going to carry out the appeal if an appeal is received? And likewise, if you then have to go on to disciplinary and appeal against a disciplinary outcome, who's going to carry out all of those stages? Is it going to be internal personnel or is it going to be external, independent individuals? 
So if there isn't a complaint in writing, then one of the first steps is going to be to have a meeting to actually ensure that the investigator has details of everything that's being complained about. And that's something that can take place over video conference, as it would if you had an investigation in person. Be clear about what the policy is that you're using. Is it the grievance procedure? Is it the bullying and harassment policy? Have you moved on to the disciplinary procedure? Again, question of who's going to investigate this. Is it going to be somebody internal but independent of the allegations? Do they have the experience to investigate this kind of an allegation? If it's sexual harassment, for example, there's a sensitivity, there's a delicacy to that. Is this somebody who's done an investigation like that before? What does the policy or the terms of reference require you to do? If you don't have a very detailed policy, if the policy doesn't give you much of a hint, then it may well be that you want to put some terms of reference together for the investigator so it's very clear to the investigator and indeed to both parties what's going to happen. A big question that comes up in this context because of all the case law that we've seen on this in Ireland in terms of fair procedures is, are you required to investigate the facts and establish if there's a case to answer? Or are you actually required to make findings on the facts? And if you're required to make findings, which are going to then track through potentially to a disciplinary process, then it might be that you need some additional protections in place throughout the investigation process. If it's a case to answer, then those protections usually can be put in place at the disciplinary process stage. I I think there's a question, how do you gather the relevant evidence when everyone's working remotely, are there documents that might only be held on site and you can't access them? You may only be able to rely on the documents you have access to on your system. So so that's something that needs to be considered, I think, at the outset. Do you have access to the relevant information and evidence in order to carry out the investigation effectively? Also consider how you're going to provide documents to interviewees and how they're going to provide documents to you. So you're not going to be sitting in the same room. It may be that you want to email documents ahead of time. That's what I've seen quite a lot of investigators doing since we've moved into this situation where a lot of people are working from home. And again, consider the technology you're going to use. Is it suitable? Does everybody who needs to get onto one of these calls or a video conference have access to the appropriate technology? Do you need to do a test run? before the meeting. I mean, it's, it's practical stuff, but it will help the investigation go, go more smoothly. And then same question that you'd have at a normal investigation, who's going to attend each of the meetings? So usually the investigator and a, an interviewee, a complainant, the person who's been accused, other witnesses will have separate meetings. They may, the, the individuals who are attending the meeting may, may want a support person to attend with them. They may be entitled to one and the, there may well also be a note taker. So consider how that's going to happen. Um, plan your questions. Think about and think about the categories of who, what, when, why, where. Ensuring there's dates. Ensuring you have relevant documentation to hand as an investigator, so that you can be quite forensic in your examination of things. One of the things I think, uh, Colleen, that's come up since we've been advising on these kind of investigations is individual employees potentially arguing that they shouldn't have to attend a remote investigation or they should have to attend, they, they should be allowed to wait until they're able to do it in person. Um, but I think, as you said rightly, given that courts all over the world are doing remote hearings, I think for the purposes of an internal investigation, that just doesn't wash. The flip side of it is if an employer was to say, look, let's have a meeting, let's do an investigation in a month's time when things are opening up again, 
because we want to do it in person. I think there's a danger there that if people are still working from home and you're requiring somebody to attend a meeting in person in the office and with other people in the room with them, that they might argue uh, against that and say that that's putting their health and safety at risk. So I think our view is we have the technology to move most of these investigations forward. And it's actually better to start the process sooner rather than later, because as, as both Colleen and Regan said, if there's undue delay in a process, that can also be criticised by an employee further down the line. Thanks, Claire. And I think, I think that's right. We do have the technology, whereas teleconferencing probably was available to elite corporates now. Everybody has access, or most people in this type of situation where there are workplace investigation would have access to Microsoft's Teams or Zoom, or you know perhaps even, obviously, there's also a call that can be made. But the Microsoft Teams Zoom allow a visual and interactive experience. And Regan, just kind of taking it from there, you know, where you have the actual uh, investigation meeting, you know, we, we discussed that there should be some sort of key ground rules as to how they might process, which could form part, again, as I mentioned earlier, the COVID policies that we're preparing for, for clients at the moment uh, in the return to work. Yeah, I think, I mean, the first point is, is that you, you build off what you've always done, which is that you have a set formula for how one of these hearings or meetings will go. And one of the key points to that is that you tell people at the very beginning of the meeting, you lay the ground rules at the beginning of the meeting about what is going to be required and what is going to happen so that everybody's very clear so that the person understands the process and they understand what is required of them and they understand what will happen next. And obviously, very importantly, and this is something that has always been the case, that they understand the potential consequences, you know, what will happen if the allegations are proved, what will happen as an outcome of this meeting. And, you know, that's always been the case, but there are obviously additions here resulting from the fact that you'll be doing everything remotely. So one of the first things is you'll be checking that the person is alone because you've no way of really knowing that for certain. So you'll be asking them to confirm that. You'll be asking them to confirm that they're not recording the meeting. Again, you'll have no way of absolutely confirming this and it is possible and you should be prepared for the fact that the person may be recording it and recording video, which nobody likes. I mean, there are huge data protection issues there and privacy issues. But you should make it clear to them that if it's found out that they have recorded it, having been specifically instructed not to do so, that there could be disciplinary consequences as a result of that. And then you should set out the, I suppose, the, the technical ground rules in terms of muting when you're not speaking and that kind of thing and making sure there isn't any noise interference. And I suppose it, what's been in the press recently, um, most notably, I think about 10 days ago, the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, during our oral arguments, somebody flushed the toilet. Um, you know, to the hilarity, uh, general hilarity ensued in terms of uh, people outside of it. And there were various articles and it appeared in late night uh, TV shows. But I mean, that's what you don't want. Uh, you'll get accusations of disrespect and, and the like, uh, while, while it, it's funny on one level. So, so basically, as I said, it's the same as has always been the case. Uh, you make sure people have clear understanding. The thing you have to remember, though, is that there will be probably a little bit of stopping and starting here. Sometimes people won't have the documents, all the documents that they, they should have. You know, when you're doing things in the ordinary course, it's, it's very easy to ensure that the person has the pack of documents. Uh, the way that we're doing it remotely now, I mean, things are going to get dropped. It, you might get to the you know, disciplinary hearing or investigation meeting and realise that they're lacking something fairly key. So you have to stop the meeting and maybe resume it later or have it another day. So you're going to have to repeat all of that again. And you're going to have to ensure that you emphasise all the, the ground rules at the beginning of every meeting. Because what you don't want to happen is that, you know, you have the first attempt at a hearing on a Monday, you, you set out all the ground rules 
it has to be postponed because of one thing or another. You start again on Friday. You don't read all that stuff out. The person breaches the rules and then says, well, I didn't know you never said at the beginning, which could happen. Uh, you have to, I suppose, prepare for the worst. But that, that's it. I mean, it, it's all about clarity, transparency and consistency. And, and don't be afraid to be repetitive. There is no problem with that. Better to have said it 10 times than not at all. And I think there might be as well, Regan, some issue around having a representative and deciding as well, uh, potentially at the beginning, how the uh, witness might interact with the representative. Absolutely. And that's a key point here. You're quite right to uh, interject if that's something I left out. Uh, it's probably one of the most no important problem. points. Um, yeah, you, you, you set out your ground rules there in terms of, yeah, what will the representative be doing? And again, this is something that has always been the case, particularly in cases where, and and I suppose going back to McKelvey, sometimes employers do let somebody bring a solicitor with them. But even if it's a case of, uh, you know, their trade union representative or a colleague, you still should be clear with them about what that person's role is. Are they going to be, when are they going to be allowed to speak? There should be simplicity to it in terms of, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, it's the employee who has to speak and they have to answer the charges against them. But their representative or the person accompanying them may have a role in it as well, where they might want to make a point at the end or they they might feel there are legal arguments to be made or whatever it is. uh, And that you you say when that is to happen. You also uh, make sure they understand the ground rules in terms of recording and the like. So, yeah, it's again, it's all about clarity and, and laying down your rules, because it's your it's your hearing and you're the boss and you want to make sure that it runs smoothly. These are very difficult circumstances. And uh, you don't want any unwanted uh, complications. Yeah, I think the investigator has to lead the meeting. They have to control who will enter the meeting and who, and they should be the last person to leave the meeting. I mean, there is some, you can allow communication between an individual um, and their representative, maybe through a phone. I think Zoom, some of the kind of more sophisticated versions of Zoom do have even have breakout rooms. So I think, you know, like I said, there is a process, all of which is a bit of trial and error. But I mean, I would not get disheartened if you had to kind of reschedule to the following day, because you will get there. And in some ways, it's not as difficult as having an in-person meeting. These things can be rescheduled on a, a fairly easy basis. And I think then after that, yeah, then you have your, yeah, I think so. Yeah, you have to be. Because, you know, it's difficult for everybody to go through. It's a new process. And there will be a bit of like we've said repeatedly here, a bit of stop-start, but look, that's what's going to happen. And, you know, if there is delays, Mm. if things need to be checked, I always say when I'm advising on these situations, you know, keep the parties updated, you know, regularly review the timetable for this process. You know, if there are going to be delays, if things need to be checked, if documents aren't available remotely, but on hard copy, then yes, you do have to take time out to get those documents to the witness or time for it to be reviewed. So there will be kind of a potential slower process than there would be in a face-to-face meeting. And I suppose then we come then to the report itself. Once that process has all been gone through, again, as we've articulated, the same kind of approach applies as what you would be doing if you had done this on a face-to-face basis. And I always, from my perspective, when again, when I'm advising, I'm doing these investigations myself, I always remind myself, what does the policy say? What are the terms of reference? What am I being asked to do here? And I go back over that, you know, is it a case to answer? Is it actual findings? Be very, very clear as to what it is you've been asked to do. Because in my experience, and I think in Claire's and Regan's experience, and I think you all agree here, wouldn't you? <laughs> that, you know, this is where these processes yeah. unravel. And that's where the difficulty, you know, where an investigator might exceed their remit. And the problem with this is that this can cause huge disruption for business. Because if it's challenged by the employee, there can be very significant consequences flowing from that process 
that's why it's really key to get that process correct and get the process right here uh, and that you have someone experienced doing the investigation or you'll have the proper advice because you know particularly in circumstances where the stakes are high like a sexual harassment case or something like that but we've we've advised a lot of them the last 18 months that individuals often get lawyered up and you know we'll challenge the process if there is a case where an, an investigator does exceed their remit because the stakes are so high for that individual having a finding against them for that and that's you know really to be avoided at all costs and our approach in all these situations it's a litigation-proof people's actions to give careful, good advice that you know stops things unraveling, stops something turning into something bigger than it needs to, to have to be. So the report cross-refers back all the time to what the policy or terms of reference has authorised the investigator to do. You set out the methodology utilised, and again, just like you would always do as normal, as normal you evaluate the facts. You make, you know, you make a decision and the findings are not or the, the case to answer are normally on the sort of the lower civil standard of proof on the balance of probabilities. So that's that process. And then, Claire, I think there's some sort of, you know, once you've got your report and, you know, that's all done and dusted, that will take some time. There's always kind of like a post-investigation process as well. We've gone from pre-investigation, investigation, the report, and there's some kind of there's issues around post-investigation as well, Claire. You might want to reflect on some of those. Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, if there's an appeal allowed for in the policy, the procedure or the terms of reference, there may be an appeal by either of the parties. Let's say it's an investigation pursuant to your bullying and harassment policy. Either the complainant or the person who's had the complaint made against them might choose to appeal depending on the um, the issues. And then obviously, as an employer, you have to decide on whether you go into disciplinary procedure thereafter. But I think there's a wider, there are wider issues really post-investigation because Again, this is the thing about employment law generally. You're talking about relationships between people and those relationships, generally speaking, have to continue in the workplace, regardless of whether there's been a very difficult investigation that you've gone through, difficult issues raised. So sometimes there's a need for a meeting to bring people back together again, and particularly if they're going to have to work together in the future, some kind of restorative approach to try and bring some kind of harmony back into the workplace. I think we shouldn't underestimate the the mental health impact that these processes can have on the complainant, the person who's been accused, and also other people who've been involved. Uh, it can be very stressful for everybody. I think we've we've all seen that. You know, whoever we're advising or acting for, employer, employee, these processes are stressful. And in some ways, in the situation that we're in at the moment where everyone's working from home or a lot of people are working from home, the mental health impact may be exacerbated by that. The flip side of that is time is a great healer. And actually, if you conclude one of these processes and people have a couple more months before they actually have to be physically in the same workplace with each other, maybe they can put it behind them more easily. So I think those are some of the things probably to think about post-investigation. Yes, thanks, Claire. And I think that all points to, you know, progress the investigation. Don't leave it sitting there. You know, deal with it. You know, the technology is there for all of us to utilise. And there's no reason why those workplace investigations should wait until there's like a full return to normal. So I would just like to thank my panel, Claire and Regan, for today. The team at CC Solicitors are experienced in conducting investigations and also advising on investigations. So if anybody has any queries or would like to have any questions in relation to these types of processes done remotely, please don't hesitate to contact one of us. 
So I'd like to thank everybody who's listened to our podcast today. Thank you very much. And we will be doing another podcast next week, specifically on issues that arise for senior executives in the context of COVID-19. So please listen in to our next podcast. Thank you very much. Goodbye. You've been listening to the CC Solicitors podcast. For more information or to get in touch, visit ccsolicitors.ie.